Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. everyone and welcome back to the beer ladies podcast i'm lisa and i am your host today and i am ably guided by christina carolyn and sarah hello ladies hello and we will be talking about prohibition today enormous topic we're not going to cover everything so just want to set some expectations there but before we dive in i do want to remind everyone that you can watch us on youtube You can subscribe to us everywhere you get your podcast, like, subscribe, rate, review. It really, really, really does help us get the word out there. So we really appreciate it. So thank you, everyone. So with that said, prohibition, again, huge, huge, huge topic. So before we dive in, we'll sort of, um, again, I'll I'll sort of set the scene. We're going to talk a little bit about what leads up to prohibition. We're going to tell some prohibition-related stories, but we are by no means going to cover every single aspect of prohibition there's just so much to talk about so many great books out there so many great uh documentaries you could watch so we're just going to touch on a few things that i think maybe perhaps things people don't necessarily know off the bat or if you do it's going to be a little bit of revision so just you know kick back have a drink so speaking of drinks let's start christina what are you drinking um well in in the uh spirit as it were of prohibition i am drinking a non-alcoholic beer so, um, actually, so, so beer reached out to me and asked if they could send me some beer. So they did. Um, and so this is their non-alcoholic late lager and I really actually quite like this. So I really enjoy this. Um, Lisa actually suggested you, <laughs> this Lisa suggested, um, that it, it kind of tastes like a Mexican light lager and I completely agree. And so she said to add a lime to it. So I have added a lime to it today and let me tell you, it's very nice. <laughs> Yeah, so, um, yeah, very into non-alcoholic log or non-alcoholic beer to drink sort of in between alcoholic beer to minimize those pesky hangovers, which, um, you know, (laughs) the older I get, the worse they are. (laughs) Very, very good point. And Carolyn, I know it's early where you are, so you may not be kicking back with, you know, a 10% beer or crazy (laughs) cocktail, but what do you got going on? I am drinking gin from Still Austin, Austin Whiskey Company. Um, I'm drinking it with club soda, and it's pretty good. It has good flavor to it. Excellent. And we will certainly talk a little bit about um, Prohibition's effect on cocktails and, and how they uh, sort how we sort of ended up with the variety we have today. Obviously, not going to get too deep into it because, again, that could be an entire podcast and we'll, we'll put some things in the show notes that I think are, are good for that. But so what you drinking? I'm also the voice of the temperance movement today. I'm just having a normal <laughs> cup of Irish tea. Um, Which one? Which one? Uh, the one from Lidl. That's really cheap. Okay. I don't really <laughs> like it that much. <laughs> I can't remember the name of it. Um, but my husband behind me is drinking a, I, I, this counts because I had a sip of it before. So a Black's Brewery Pineapple Express High IPA. Sorry. Oh, okay. There we go. Excellent. Very good. Pineapple-y and I, he likes it. I think it was a little too pineapple for me, but yeah, I'm going to stick <laughs> oh, to my tea for today. Uh, nothing wrong with that. And, and so I've got uh, a Dea uh, Tappy Pills. This is uh, a British lager and this is actually really, really lovely. I tried to go out and find 
an equivalent of a sort of pre-prohibition American lager was unsuccessful, couldn't even find an, an anchor steam uh, in the, the kind of time I had, but this is really nice. And I'll, I'll, uh, for those who are listening, I'll also sort of show it's a very, very light, uh, crisp lager. Um, most pre-prohibition American lagers would not have been this light. A lot of them would have been darker. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but I think perfect segue. Um, I've written an article about this in the past, but I'm gonna throw over to Christina to say, how do we get here? What happened? So to, again, to set the scene a little bit, like a lot of bad ideas, it starts rooted in other bad ideas. So Christina, over to you. Tell us what happened in the 1840s that made everything just kind of set the scene for decades of nonsense. Well, the 1840s. Well, that's going back. So, so yeah. So the the temperance movement originally started out, and it wasn't. Um, uh, it was more of a moderate movement in the beginning. It wasn't necessarily advocating for the complete abolition of like all alcohol in general, but just the like a significant reduction. Um, and it was originally supported by people sort of across the board. Um, originally. Originally, um, this this did not last. Um, very long. Um, so, for example, uh, Frederick Douglass actually was one of the was one of the people that attacked it um, and said that they they failed to make room sort of for black people within the movement, um, mm. and it sort of did not um, engage with with the abolition of slavery because there were lots of um, people in the South who supported the movement. Completely unacceptable by any stretch of the imagination, and so we kind of see a sort of division there. Um, but, you know, it, it takes, it is a process of becoming more and more virulently to the movement that we see kind of now. It, it does start moderate and it gets more and more and more and more and more and more until it's complete prohibition. And they want a complete, complete removal of alcohol from the, from the U S and um, I'll, I'll I'll slide it back to Lisa, but uh, <laughs> when I come back, I will talk about how racist, um, anti-immigrant, anti-Semitic, uh, the prohibition movement ends up. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really, really important thing to to, to note is that it's an incredibly white movement uh, when we start getting into the the really hardcore temperance stuff, and and uh, it, it's uh, it, it actually remains today. The Women's Christian Temperance Union is still a going concern. It is very, very, very white. It is, it is all very much tied into this sort of missionary sort of uh, roots, if, if you like, but it's, uh, it's a whole thing. And they still, again, look them up. They do some crazy stuff still, but yeah. it, it is interesting that again, to, to your point, a lot of this comes out of this very, you know, nativist movement, which again, ironic name for, for, for what it was, but it's, uh, you know, so, so to go, to go sort of go back to the 1840s, which again, not the only, not the only one, but it's, it's a nice one to sort of, link onto because you have a lot of German immigrants coming to the U.S. starting in the 1840s, especially after 1848, when, you know, let's be real, shit got real all across Europe in sort of 1848 and, and the sort of years before and after. But all of the Germans turn up and it becomes this very specifically anti-German and then a little bit later anti-Irish as well, but it's anti-Catholic overall is one of the big things that's driving a lot of this from a political point of view. And Curious to, to throw to, to Sarah and Carolyn, like, I feel like this is left out when you hear the kind of popular narratives of, about prohibition. You kind of get your gangsters and you get, you know, things like that. But, you know, did you guys learn any of that at school or did, did, did was it all just sort of like, and then we didn't have booze? Just curious. I took AP I U.S. history in college and I'm trying to go back. I don't think <laughs> yeah. I did very well in that class. <laughs> I don't think, I don't remember them being like, this is like exactly what happened. Because, you know, for it's school... Like- they take out a lot of information good and bad like you said lisa this is like a massive uh piece of history with a lot of different contexts and angles that you could approach it so in high school probably prohibition is like maybe you talk about it one day out of the week and that's it you move on we gotta get to world war ii yeah exactly this is what happened we had no booze uh, those 13 years go very quickly and and I think it's and again it's interesting to be looking back on it now um where you know you had a society then that would have just come out of you know a terrible world war a terrible pandemic and instead of having like you know booze you could go to it's like oh sorry not, none of that for you but of course the reality is it's still everywhere but that that's actually something we can do a little bit of uh, myth busting about too because most people are following the law even if they think it's dumb but 
you know, at the same time, that's not kind of the, you know, the, the sort of um, image we, we, we get of it. But I don't know, Kristen, if you want to talk about like the, like the Chicago beer riot or some of those yeah. things that lead up to this. Yeah. So I might, I'm just going to talk a bit about how racist it was and how anti-immigrant Absolutely. it was and, and some of the examples sort of about what it is. And so um, the first article that I'm, well, I mean, Obviously, I just want to throw it out there. If you have JSTOR, find Prohibition, Racism, and Class Politics in the Post-Reconstruction South by Denise Hurd. Um, I really, really highly recommend that. And that's sort of like preliminary reading to sort of what I'm going to get into a bit now. So the first article that I'm going to sort of skim and summarize is by Christine Sismono, um, What Prohibition Teaches Us About Race Relations in the U.S.? So um, and she and she says, and I think this is very clear, that the prohibition movement essentially sanctioned white terrorism and established mass, uh, quote, mass incarceration in the name of religion. And I think this is really true. And unfortunately, I do think this does um, get completely sort of swept under the rug. Um, And and again, um, from her article, she says, um, Quote, as renowned lawyer Clarence Darrow famously said in 1924, quote, I would not say that every anti-saloon leaguer is a Ku Kluxer, but every Ku Kluxer is an anti-saloon leaguer. Mm-hmm. So just so you have an idea of how infiltrated by white supremacy and white terrorist organizations, the prohibition movement was, it was and the white Christian temperance union. These are, these become movements of the Ku Klux Klan and white supremacy. This is what prohibition is. And they're not just attacking African-Americans. They are attacking immigrants. They're attacking Catholics. Um, It's anti-Semitic in nature. This is, besides all of us who like alcohol, this is a very dangerous movement. Um, So one of the examples that, um, that that Christine Sismondo uh, talks about is the Atlanta race riots in 1906. Mm. So this was a three-day massacre um, that saw white mobs terrorize the city's black residents. So around 25 black men and women were killed. And this was sparked by two newspapers basically saying nonsense that um, four white women had been raped by black men um, and that this was somehow linked to some black owned saloons on Decatur street. And so after this, they, uh, the Atlanta's white residents attacked this um, growing, rising black middle-class. They attacked them, they killed them. And this was the kind of thing that they were doing. So there was basically an excuse right? An excuse for white terrorism under the guise of prohibition. Um, and this, this was something that sort of continued. And, and again, as like Lisa said, this was a nativist movement. So we're talking about lots of anti-Catholic ideologies, lots of um, anti-Irish, anti-French, anti-Italian, um, anyone who is Catholic. I mean, but this goes back for a long, long period of time. Catholics were discriminated against for a long period of time because there was for for many reasons, but one being that they held a stronger association or link to the Pope than to the leader of their country. So they were always viewed as somewhat dubious because they weren't necessarily, they were more loyal to the Pope than they were to their own country. This is not necessarily true. This is what some of the, the nonsense was that um, went along. So again, really, really, really um, sort of horrific ideologies. And, and again, this is all sort of wrapped up in this white Anglo-Saxon Protestant ideology. And this, this is one of the reasons why we in medieval history don't use the term um, Anglo-Saxon anymore is because it's really associated with racism and white supremacy. And so, you know, we as medievalists are moving away from and getting rid of this term because of its severe racist connotations um, that we can kind of see again in, in prohibition. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's all kinds of other stuff. And, 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 but on the other side of that coin too, it, it is also, wrapped up with with a lot of sort of the progressive movement and, and, and sort of early feminism at the same time. So, but again, because it's such a white movement, you don't get those those women of color who were the early feminists or the progressives. They're, they're sort of shunted off to one side because there is absolutely a huge problem with, with alcohol in, in, in America, you know, leading up to this. But instead of uh, sort of solving the problem of people being overworked and, you know, despairing over, you know, things instead of having labor laws or laws to protect women and children, because the one of the lines that would get sold again by sort of progressive middle class and upper class 
mostly white Protestant feminists was like, oh, we're, we're rescuing these poor women who can't speak for themselves, whose husbands go and spend all their money on booze and who abuse them. And that was absolutely happening to some extent, but instead of solving, you know, people not having opportunity or no, not having any sort of legal protections for women and children, they're like, maybe we just won't have booze. That will, yeah. that will be a whole thing. Lisa McGurr, who's this professor of history, she wrote How Prohibition Fueled the Klan. And she talks about like the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And um, as I mentioned before, the Anti-Saloon League, how they sort of formed two phalanxes that had to do with this like sort of white supremacist ideology. And equally, as, as you said, Lisa, a lot of these um, a lot of these feminist women that um, that I think I think a lot of white women look to sort of unproblematically about how, you know, they're 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 sort of grandmothers of this thing. Well, they were really associated with this really, really racist ideology. And so they cannot be removed from that. And they were they were called out about that by by black feminist women at the yeah. time. And they didn't do anything or enough about that at all. And they continued because they were so. They didn't care. I mean, to be honest, they didn't care. And and so we cannot remove them from this either. And I think when we talk now about the idea of like white feminism. Yeah, you know, it's this, right there. Yeah. Uh, well, I was going to say um, about the feminism point was well, I was reading an article I found on I was reading about prohibition in Nashville because I'm from Nashville and it's more interesting to me when you um, and it's uh, an article and it had there's a section in it. Um, talking about how the 18th and the 19th amendments work together and basically Mm -hmm. how I didn't understand this. So I'm going to explain it the way I understand it, but, or I'll just read it, but many women who supported the temperance movement and then prohibition, they did it for personal reasons. And a lot of times it was because they blamed alcohol for the reason why their husbands came home drunk and beat the crap out of them. So of course they don't, they're for prohibition, but they're also, um, supporting like supporting prohibition was also supporting the women's suffrage movement absolutely which i never realized um mm-hmm. and then on the flip side this article writes uh this is also the reason why many men and women who did not support a women's right to vote is because it meant no more legal alcohol and i was like oh there were women who were definitely not against suffrage and i've always wondered why but yeah that was an interesting point yeah Absolutely. And I think, again, I think the local angles are, are really important because, again, going back to sort of the, the, the sort of big German immigration, a lot of them come to the Midwest and, and that part of the South as well. They go to Cincinnati, they go to St. Louis, they go to Milwaukee, and a large part because there are caves there, they can log their beer under there. And, you know, a lot of these people, though, again, these are highly skilled professional brewers. These are not sort of... Um, and again, it, there's a lot of classism in this too, but th- these are not people who have no skills. These are people who have come, who are ready to, you know, be the, the kind of um, sort of venture capitalists of their day to a certain extent. They are setting up huge businesses. And, you know, to, to a certain extent, because of prohibition, the city of Cincinnati, for example, like essentially destroyed their, their legal economy by getting rid of all of that. And so you can really argue that in some ways it never recovered. But, but Sarah, you're absolutely right in that it, it's really... You, you know, absolutely tied to, um, you know, who has power, who doesn't, do we want to give women power or not? But yes, the 18th and 19th Amendment are inextricably linked. And I think it's, it's important to acknowledge that and be like, a lot of these people are problematic, there's good stuff, but there's bad stuff in here, too. And, you know, if you don't sort of give a nod to that, then it gets, then it gets complicated. But but I think, uh, to go over to Carolyn, I think, you've been looking at up some stuff from Texas and that's going to be interesting as a border state, you've got all kinds of things going on and potentially booze coming in there. I'm curious what you've, uh, what you've discovered. Yeah. In the local uh, history. Yeah. I'm going to like read this a bit. So it said at the start of the national prohibition, the state of Texas found itself in a, in like a weird position due to <laughs> geography. Like, <laughs> yes. I mean, we're next to Mexico, so, and they said, unlike the U.S., Mexico allowed the legal sale of liquor and smugglers to capitalize on the new black market. So they sent a lot of tequila and stuff through the smugglers, and so it's a Texas law enforcement faced up against both smugglers from across the Mexican border and native-born moonshiners. (laughs) However, the law enforcement viewed and dealt with these groups in different ways. So I bet they did, and that's... That's another interesting one. And actually a little aside too, I don't know if anyone saw the, I, I forget where the American congressman was railing against all of the 
imported meth. Uh, and it's, you know, and he, he was like, before this was all local Montana, it was Montana <laughs> meth. And now it's all coming in from Mexico. I was like, what are you saying? Like, did you want your local like artisanal meth? Like what, what are we talking about? <laughs> yeah. Here? And the law is not applied equally. Like that's why we have Absolutely. like, you know, if you go to like Vegas and they have the mob museum and you see all like the mob prohibition stuff and which is, I think sort of like the, uh, what we all kind of think about prohibition. Yeah. We think of sort of like speakeasies and the mob and this, you know, we don't really learn about how racist or anti-immigrant or, or all this other things, but, but that's really who that they were sort of going after. They weren't, they, right. but they were certainly attacking your, you know, your small black owned businesses or your immigrant or the, not even immigrant yeah just just (laughs) anyone that they deemed like you know other is absolutely and and actually that's a perfect segue because i'm going to talk a little bit and i'll probably come back to her a couple times about mabel willebrandt who was one of the first women to be an associate attorney general in the united states and this is actually if you look back it's a sort of perfect example of what we call now the glass cliff where they promote a woman to a job that they know is going to be a failure because she is just essentially put in, in, in 1921, she is essentially put in to enforce the Volstead Act, which is what brings in prohibition. And she personally was like, well, this is dumb. Like she was never in favor of prohibition, but this was her job. And so now she was trying to figure out how do you prosecute people in this? You know, how, you know, you know, what do you do here? And, and this was, you know, she started like documenting like who was the most corrupt judge, the most corrupt like local commissioner, all of these things, because she clearly understood relatively early on that this was, you know, she had been set up to fail essentially in this job. But that was one of her big points was how come we're not, you know, actually prosecuting the big operators? We are shutting down a speakeasy. We are going after, you know, an individual woman selling booze, you know, out of her, you know, you know out of her, uh, back garden so uh her, her quotation was that uh prosecuting speakeasies was like trying to dry up the atlantic ocean with a blotter and now again she's not unproblematic we're going to come back to this later because uh she also sort of actively campaigns uh against al smith who was running for, for president at that time um we'll come back to that but there's again this sort of anti-catholic element but there's there's a twist in the end so we, we will come back to her but i think Again, let, let's talk a little bit more about um, kind of, Carolyn, what you're saying in terms of that sort of tequila coming across the border, because this is kind of, at least in people's minds, when what we'd say our modern cocktails are invented largely to, you know, disguise the taste of this right. awful bathtub shit. Now, again, to myth bust, that's a little bit overstated, but that said, this is one reason why, one, we, we have cocktails as a popular thing even now, and two, why women can go into bars now because before prohibition women did not go into bars unless yeah. they were prostitutes or uh saloon owners but yeah you know, respectable women in air quotes did not go yeah, to bars. so yeah so this is interesting um because it says because texas because dry texas was next door to what mexico the borderlands developed a profitable tr- trade for smugglers uh Tequiros translated tequila people in English. This is what this article says. Purchased their alcohol legally in Mexico and transported their goods across the border to sell at a significantly higher price to a group of native bootleggers who would distribute the product. So, like, you're getting on the people that are sending it over, but you're not going to get on the people that are actually distributing the product. Like, <laughs> this makes no sense. They, right. They're both they should both be punished equally but <laughs> if you're gonna punish someone they should both be punished equally because Absolutely. these people are making a profit well they're making a high profit on tequila and whatever else they were bringing across yeah, tequila or tequila or whatever yeah. they're yeah calling it and i think that's and and i think to mention to, to bring in wayne wheeler who's kind of the big bad of a lot of this he was really the architect of some of the worst things that happened he wrote a lot of the volstead act he was a terrible 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 person like we can just say that he has no redeeming qualities he is literally the worst and there are a lot of parallels really with like someone like wayne lapierre because he was sort of feared by politicians in the same way that, yeah. you know, the modern NRA is, or again, sort of the larger, I would say sort of, you know, gun movement across the US. And, and, and again, where it's that same thing where it sort of went from being something reasonably sensible that, you know, for example, hunters supported to being this like free for all, everyone should be armed to the teeth kind yeah. of thing. There are a lot of parallels with um, 
kind of what Wayne Wheeler did, where he essentially set up this sort of bulletproof organization and no one would vote against the things he, you know, he said. So again, he got the Volstead yeah. Act through and he was also the one responsible for making sure that there were, you know, such, you know, terrible laws that all of these people died from drinking, you know, you know, stuff that was yeah. certainly not drinkable and no, no bother. N- never, never suffered any kind of consequences as a result. Yeah. Is it something like 10,000 people died during It's something like that. Something it is. like that from yeah. like- Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Mostly from poisoned alcohol because of all this? Exactly. And again, and it's a, it's a gamut too. It's not, you know, just, again, in air quotes, you know, sort of, it would be sort of um, in the press at the time to be like, oh, well, these people were alcoholics anyway and were not contributing to society, which again is a terrible thing to say, but yeah. was not true. It could be also be the case of, you know, you someone who just gone out for one, you know, one sort of drink on the slide. That absolutely happened too, but there was no, you know, sort of no remorse, no recompense, just, um, and he was basically like, I'm glad they're dead because again, he was literally the worst. So if, if anyone's watched any of the sort of big documentaries, I think they do a good job of whether it's the Ken Burns one or I enjoyed enjoy the BBC two one from, oh God, like 20 years ago now. He, he is the big bad because he is the worst. And, um, you know, I, I think we shouldn't uh, fail to point out that there were individual people driving a lot of this who were, right. you know, terrible. So there's a lot of these people like they'll, there will be some redeeming quality or, you know, something they were known for. And some of the stuff that they did in this period gets kind of, you know, we sort of hand wave it away. Like, but they, they did other stuff, which again, people are complicated. So it's, it's hard to, it, it's hard to separate some of these things, but, but again, it is so inextricably tied up with sort of this bit of white feminism and that bit of, you know, anti, especially anti-Catholic, um, you, you know, sort of sentiment. But, but again, also, Christina, to your point, you know, disproportionately prosecuting people of color, for example, or the poor uh, in general in the U.S. It was, uh, you know, when they did prosecute something high profile. So, for example, when when the 21 Club in New York gets raided a couple of times, it's a big story because it's unusual. It's not a big story, you know, because that was happening all the time. It, it's uh, it, it's. Um, that's almost kind of the parallel to, to sort of a, you know, sort of a current Brexit story where like right now British people in Spain are having to leave because they've discovered they're illegal immigrants. And it's like, okay, well, th- that's the sort of schadenfreude story. So same with the 21 Club where they'd kept all of their really good booze and were selling it to their well-heeled uh, patrons. But of course, a lot of their well-heeled patrons were also well-known yeah. political bosses <laughs> and, you know, they never thought this would apply to them because yeah. rules had never applied to them. 
So mm-hmm. this is actually funny. <laughs> so because um, the Mexicans didn't have any like they, I mean, the ones who were creating this were poor. They used donkeys. They trained donkeys to wait at the watering hole or at home so they could be taught to like smuggle the product across and then come back home. So the border patrol hated these donkeys because the donkeys knew exactly where to go back home. And I just think that's it's fantastic. Very it's interesting. Good boys that and they girls. Use donkeys. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, that they use donkeys instead of like, I mean, they could, according to this article, they, they were very poor and couldn't afford cars and trains like other people. So that's why they use donkeys. But also, how smart is that? Like, what a good job. Like, no one's going to prosecute, you know, your donkey. This is no. <laughs> like, it's kind of genius because you just send it <laughs> to go to a specific place and then come back home. Like, in fairness, yeah. in fairness, I wouldn't put them past prosecuting a donkey because there was a famous <laughs> case. Remember, with, I, there was a famous case where like a pig killed a child and they they took the pig oh, yeah. to trial and then they hung it. Did they what? make bacon out of it afterwards? Know. No, they executed it and then put it where they thought they could. So they let a whole pig go to waste? <laughs> I, I don't know what they did with the body, Not to be no. fair, Sarah. I don't know, but I do remember that we they- We could have had BLTs for days. That's <laughs> hilarious. They did, they did oh, put the pig on trial and the pig was executed. Oh, the pig oh. have so yeah, we'll, we'll link this article in the show notes because it's actually very interesting and has a lot of information. Wow, that sounds fantastic. I didn't know that about the donkeys. And then I've, I've looked into a little bit. Um, I, I feel like people, again, know it, in air quotes a lot about sort of booze coming from Havana. Like, you know, it's very sexy to be on your boat and, you know, bringing things yeah. in from Cuba or coming across the, the Canadian border as well. Um, but I think we don't talk as much about, about the Texas-Mexico border, which, mm. you know, we should, because also that's where you're making all of your really interesting cocktails, frankly, like anything that's, you know, going to have tequila, that kind of thing. But, but again, to sort of circle back to, to this idea, too, that, you know, you have women going to speakeasies, women who would have never gone to a sort of typical saloon or typical bar. But I think, Sarah, you had something interesting about these different sort of um, classifications of drinking yeah. establishments. So we have, uh, you know... A bar is a bar. We know what a pub is, but they always have all those fun Wild West terms for (laughs) bars, which is like saloon, tippling house, or a tavern. I think tavern is quite nice. But in the same article, it's a very good article, who was written by a friend of mine from high school. I am fairly certain. Um, And it's talking about the uh, the difference in the definition between what a tavern, saloon, and tippling house are. And they are all defined as a place where drinkers are entertained, usually with minimal food and without overnight accommodations. And on that note, I would like to propose we stop calling it wet pubs in Ireland right now and start calling it something more exciting like tavern, saloon, and tippling house. Here, team tippling house. We should, oh, we should get t-shirts. Definitely tippling team house. tippling house. I can't wait to the tippling houses are open again. <laughs> oh. I'm gonna go tipple some. Tipple. Oh yes, let's tipple away. That would be phenomenal. Oh my, oh my goodness. It's I love that. Yeah, slight aside. I got some some four provinces. Uh, I got a growler delivered the other day, and just to have fresh beer, it was it was really nice. So oh, I miss a pint. Oh, Although maybe we should try to make some bathtub gin sometime. Uh, Historically <laughs> accurate for this episode. Well, yeah. and, and again, I, I think uh, a good a good sort of um, segue. So, so we know too that uh, you know you have things like Vine Glow, which would be you know it's almost like a homebrew kit. You get your sort of packet of of, of sort of grapes and and your your sort of packet of. Uh, of yeast and it's like oh no 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 never put these together don't no 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 it will turn into wine and that would be the worst <laughs> do not put this in a closet where in three days time you will have disgusting but but drinkable wine but it, it's it's fantastic we'll have to link in the show notes too because their label was 100 explicit about this will turn into wine and, and get you drunk all all good but it's interesting. I'm going to go back to to, um, to Mabel Wilbrand for a minute because she ruled that it was legal. You know, in her job as assistant attorney general, she's like, well, it it's not transporting liquor, which was what was the the offense. It's just telling you what might happen. Um, and again, it's like legal in your home. So if, if people look up on the internet, you can absolutely find a find a Vine Glow advert for, from the 1920s where. Uh, 
you know, in a straight up. And, and of course, on the flip side of that, too, we have all of these people who suddenly are getting licensed as ministers or rabbis or anything to make their rabbinical wine or sacramental wine, because that's all allowed. And there is a whole controversy over how, you know, what percentage is uh, intoxicating. And I highly recommend uh, Maureen Ogles, Ambitious Brew. Ooh, we love Maureen. She's great. Hi, Maureen. Um, but uh, there's a whole bit around, you know, it had to be 0.5% or less under the Volstead Act. But as people are trying to find loopholes and try to find sort of ways through, at a certain point, they decide that 3.2% or less is probably not intoxicating. So, and people were like, I am, I will volunteer as tribute to test whether or not this is intoxicating. But it, it's a whole fascinating question when you think about sort of the, the near beer that a lot of breweries still made um at least the ones who continue to operate which was mostly disgusting although not unlike the malt tonics we talked about a few weeks ago um but it is this whole fascinating gray area in terms of what was legal and what maybe you were still making around the corner because what's the worst that could happen you might get fined you know it's uh it was all like oh you're so bad oh no don't, don't <laughs> so there's a lot there that's, um, again, sort of this combination of lack of enforcement and, and also just, you know, what were people used to? It, it's it's fascinating to me, but um, yeah, Vine Glow, there you go. <laughs> on, a, on a possible positive note, and I don't know, Sarah or um, Carolyn, if you uh, encountered this, some of the sources that I read kind of said that like the prohibition sort of like speakeasies and underground pubs sort of laid the foundation for like what we kind of view as a nightclub now. So they were like mixed gender and mixed race and sort of all kinds of different people would come and sort of mix and mingle. And that's sort of where we are now. And I don't know, yeah. did you did you two encounter that at all in your research no, or but that's interesting that that makes complete sense yeah. to me i yeah. mean I, anytime you think about a speakeasy it's just it's a lot of different types of people all in one place and it reminds me of a dive bar you know just a bunch <laughs> of weirdos drinking absolutely but, but again i think that's really really important because especially you have a lot of younger people or people who had returned from, from the first world war suddenly going out in a way that they never had before and and it, it's still important to emphasize it's probably relatively speaking a minority, but it was just so easy to do again, speak easy that, you know, people, you know, just got used to it. And um, in the same way that I think anyone who grew up in, in the States in, you know, either the eighties or nineties, like, you, you know, there was a guy you could buy pot from somewhere, not, not suggesting, but just saying everyone knew it's the same kind of idea. Um, and again, it was all just sort of ridiculous that this was all all not legal. But um, but but it it is just fascinating. And then when we start to sort of think about what finally kind of undoes prohibition, like it's a little bit like this pandemic. Everyone's just really tired at a certain point, and it's just like you know what, this is dumb. So yeah. I was going to say a lot of the stuff we're talking about, like people getting fined, and they're just like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, pay the fine reminds me a lot of some things that are happening right now so shabines parallels <laughs> like it reminds me of the shabines which really look like bars that people have sort of made um and what is that what is that phrase like for for a rich person a fine it's just the the pay the the cost to pay yeah the cost, cost to play yeah. Yeah. yeah um and so yeah but the other thing I was just going to say, um, Sarah, when you went to Vegas, did you go to the Mob Museum? Do you remember the Prohibition exhibition? I actually didn't get a chance to go to that one. I'm really jealous that you've gone. I've seen video. I've seen people on YouTube do vlogs of it, and it looks really cool. Like, even they even have, like, a hidden speakeasy bar in there, right? Did you do that part? I don't – I know. I don't think we <laughs> – we, we got stuck in the, the part where you can, like, measure yourself, like, behind bars and, 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 and all that other oh my gosh and then the prohibition exhibition oh my goodness um where it has these pictures of women and where they used to hide like flasks and stuff i'll put them i'll put them up on twitter actually i'll probably just tweet them when this episode goes back on friday but so cool i probably could have taken some notes if i had known years ago back in college when you had to sneak uh ziploc bags of jack daniels (laughs) into uh nayland stadium for a football game (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> you couldn't drink on campus like what's a better way to get this in here yeah and, oh, that's and, hilarious and, 
And speaking <laughs> of friends, um, we should all go. There are speakeasies in Dublin that we should go to in the, the blind pig. Mm. That one's really nice. Oh, good cocktail. So before though, we get just into sort of cocktails. I know we're, we're sort of running, running out of time a little bit. I'll talk a little bit about the presidential election of 1928. Um, a couple of reasons for this. Again, we have a lot of um, work, if you like, from, from uh, Mabel Willebrand. Not in a good way. Again, she's a very interesting person. Again, problematic, but also does some, some good. But again, background, 1928, Al Smith gets the Democratic nomination for president. He's the first Catholic to get the nomination for president. And it does not go well for, for reasons. Now, but again, fun aside, my dad was born in 1928. He was named after Al Smith because his parents were so excited that one of their people, if you like, was, was running, uh, running for president. But um, things got, got a little racist and a little anti-Catholic, just, just a little bit. So first of all, the, the KKK was the basic sort of last, you know, last man standing, if you like, was like, no, America needs to be dry if you needed another reason to think that these people are garbage. They were like absolutely out there like let's burn crosses so that he can't be president but um you know there was this whole big bit i'm going to read a quotation because it's super awful but again people should know about this so uh one of the uh one of the sort of big um sort of old school waspy folk if you like was all out there saying well you don't want to vote for al smith because he courts and again quoting here the Italians, the Sicilians, the Poles, and the Russian Jews, that kind has given us a stomach ache. We have been unable to assimilate such people in our national life, so we shut the door on them. But Smith says, give me that kind of people. He wants the kind of dirty people you find today on the sidewalks of New York. So again, not dissimilar from a lot of current rhetoric. There's always someone who's the persona non grata with the, the political class, but this is what's interesting. Again, going back to Mabel Willibrand, is she really, uh, even though she found this sort of personally distasteful to an extent, still campaigned for Hoover because she thought, well, if I get, you know, the Republican guy nominated, I can move up in the world. I can get, you know, a better job. I could be the Attorney General of the United States. And Hoover was duly elected and not Al Smith because, again, like you were saying, Christina was like, no, he'll take orders from the Pope. It'll be the worst. Um, so because of that, largely, he, he did not win. Hoover, of course, did. And that went well, as we all know. But um, as soon as Hoover got elected, you know, Mabel Willibrand reaches out to him and is like, so, you know, how, how about, you know, a sweet political appointment? And he was all new, new phone who dis. You know, nothing gave her absolutely fuck all, no, uh, nothing at all. So she eventually stopped working in, in politics and went out to uh, start to uh, help like the Screen Actors Guild and other people in, uh, in L.A. But there's a sort of fascinating quote from uh, one of her friends who said, if Mabel had worn trousers, she could have been president. So well, let that sink in there. But again, the last irony, the sort of twist in the story in later life, she became a Catholic to sort of, you know, be like, my, my bad, I guess. But it's, it's just a fascinating, you, you know, you, you can look at sort of individual people again, how they do interesting things and they're problematic, but also, you know, because on the one hand, you know, just following orders is, is not the best, like, you know, way forward. But it's, uh, it's fascinating that she did at least kind of try to say, this doesn't make sense and tried to sort of work, you know, within the system in air quotes. Didn't work, but uh, it's an interesting, again, she's a really interesting person to follow. I'm kind of surprised there isn't more sort of scholarship on her. There, there are bits and pieces, uh, um, you know, again, kind of more within legal scholarship than anything else. But she's a really interesting person, inextricably tied to prohibition and kind of how this all played out. But it, it's fascinating that she kind of did all the, the right things, but because she was a woman, didn't work out for her. So... Yeah, I think I think you put up an interesting point that a lot of the rhetoric that we see in this is like very similar to the anti-immigration rhetoric that we see now. Like, for example, one of the things I read is that um, I think it was the Women's Temperance, the Women's Christian Temperance Union actually said uh, they wanted um, people who were immigrants who violated prohibition to be um, sent to their respective, the, the country that they came from, which is yeah. something that I think we see now as well yeah. um, in, in sort of rhetoric, but uh, which is just awful. But like, I guess like on a happier note, <laughs> um, Carolyn, have you been 
into a speakeasy? <laughs> Not I'm yet. Gonna... My friend and I, there's this, I think it's called Midnight Cowboy. My friend and I were talking about it. And so we're going to go one day. Is that in Austin? Yes. I literally read about it right before we started this. I was looking <laughs> oh, for pictures fun. of speakeasies. Um, and it came and up as I one of the best ones. There's another one near the Capitol that's pretty good. So we'll have to go check out a few. I have not been to one. So it's on my list of things to do now that yeah, I'm I've, back. I've been to, to Cafe du Nord in, in San Francisco is an old school speakeasy, but now you just you just go in. But it's a super cool space. And again, they obviously celebrate that now as part of right. their, you know, part of their heritage. But it's uh, it's a fascinating place. And and again, I think we, we will eventually do a whole episode just around sort of cocktails and their evolution and some of the gross ones you got in the 18th century, which have <laughs> nothing to do with this. Um but I, I, yes, Sarah, for those who are just listening, Sarah's got a cool book. We'll also do cheeky drinks at some point as well. But again, it's, it's so important that we, you know, we get that. So we'll, we'll do just a couple minutes. I know we're, we're almost sort of at time here on just kind of what happened next, because it completely destroyed the beer industry and it completely destroyed effectively the, the then sort of nascent wine growing, um, you know, uh, in industry in California, especially, but you know, I was trying to think like of the pre-prohibition breweries that are still around. I could only count sort of 10. And a lot of them are, are really only around still as a brand, really less than an actual going concern, like a Pabst or, or something like that. Obviously, you do have your Yinglings and your Anchor, things like that. Again, they're not the only ones, obviously, Anheuser-Busch. But it, you know, again, to, to sort of completely take that out of the economy or out of the legal economy, like, imagine shooting yourself in the foot that much, like, Oh my God. And uh, of course it does eventually come back, but it's, it's interesting how different tastes are where you've gone from really having a wide variety of, of beer styles or relatively wide. At least you had a lot of ales, you had a, different kinds of lagers to just having one pale lager, you know, and, and nothing else. And again, a bit of an irony that the, the, the sort of German pale lager is what reigned supreme after that was what people had been railing against for decades. So it's, uh, it's a weirdon. So I don't know. And then, and then you don't even get like, I'm, I'm trying to think like, Carolyn, I guess Shiner Bach comes back, uh, you know, later. And yeah. that's one of your first popular dark loggers, really. Yeah, yeah. I and, still, that, that's yeah. on my list of places to go to. They, they don't do weekend tours, which is kind of annoying. Or they didn't. They probably still don't. But yeah. And St. Arnold's Brewing in Houston yeah. has been around for a long time as well. So those two are the ones that pop in my head that have been around for a long time <laughs> yeah absolutely but again it's a completely changed landscape afterwards and so you have all these you know you have all this consolidation that's a whole other story we won't get too much into it but it, it's again it's interesting how different tastes were and how again you had now this taste for cocktails and how you do have a slightly more egalitarian approach to again men and women going out having some not not 100 but having a little bit more diversity in kind of who you associate with and uh what that looks like again that's its own sort of big deep dive but i i don't know again christina what, what's your kind of biggest takeaway about like what happened with all this um <laughs> my biggest takeaway is that prohibition was racist and um anti-immigrant and anti-semitic as fuck and we don't learn about that um in in the education system in the u.s like that is information that when i was growing up you had to seek out um and i think that's a little messed up well i mean that's pretty much par for the course right there's so much of our history that we just sort of gloss over um but i think from my sources i think i think the 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 fact that this is sort of where like modern nightclubs come from where it's like Mm -hmm. mixed gender and mixed race and i thought that was really interesting um that some of the sources that i read had kind of mentioned i think that was really interesting and and of course like um as sarah and carolyn and i you know sort of when we mentioned speakeasies i see like everyone just kind of lights up like i i i like and even if it's not the historical reality of what it was i like the sort of modern idea and the modern take on a speakeasy i think that's sort of wonderful um i know i don't know sarah do do you have anything sort of add to that the vibes i was gonna say the speaky easy vibes like it behind me my virtual background it's just it. dark it's romantic you got the velvet seats it's just open seat i don't know i just the music yeah. i just really like them 
So, yeah, I know. I, I completely agree. I can see how speakeasies led to the modern nightclub. And I think my biggest takeaway from this is what I would say to anybody who wants to learn more about prohibition is realizing it's really complex, super complex. Absolutely. Like you say, Lisa, people are complicated. They're complicated now. And I don't think, I don't know. I think when you look back and you see somebody, what they did you have to think about the context in which the time that they lived and that's what the best that they could do at the time. I don't know. I think it's super complicated. (laughs) It is. Yeah. How about you, Carolyn? Yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, again, in school, we just learned this is prohibition. This is what it was. And then you move on to something else. So it's very interesting to like kind of deep dive into it and learn about, I mean, a little bit, I mean, I learned a lot about a little bit more about Texas Mm -hmm. and the prohibition and learning about other States and just, prohibition in general because i didn't know that it was as as sarah said as complex as it i just love your donkeys carolyn like that i love that that fact (laughs) that is a great story i i I love it oh that's fantastic so again we'll we'll, we'll probably leave it there so i want to say thank you again for listening thank you to christina carolyn and sarah again i'm lisa so remember like subscribe you can follow the beer ladies podcast on at Beer Ladies Pod on Twitter or Beer, at Beer Ladies Podcast on Instagram. Obviously, you know, you can subscribe to us everywhere on YouTube. Again, if you do subscribe on YouTube, we would be very, very happy. We can finally get a vanity URL and we are so vain. We want that vanity <laughs> URL. So we really appreciate it if you can. Uh, but of course, wherever you get your podcasts, we are there. So thank you for listening and we will catch you again next week. Bye. 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 Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.